You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today we're very excited to have a special guest speaker with us. Now let's prepare our hearts as our special guest brings forth God's truth from His Word today. T.B. Matson once made a statement to the students in his seminary class, and a young man by the name of John Mills wrote that statement down in his notebook. Matson told the class, all the claims of Christ can be summed up in two words, follow me. When John wrote that significant statement in his notebook, he placed a question mark in the margin. And he wondered whether that was an overstatement. Many years later, while John was preparing for his move to his new home in retirement, he came across that notebook and he reread that statement. At that time, he erased the question mark from the margin and he wrote these words. I am convinced that the only way to win the world is to understand Jesus' challenge and take seriously all that it implies. Simon Peter was one of those early disciples of Jesus who, who heard Jesus say, follow me. After many years of experience, he knew much more about the implication of that invitation that Jesus had given. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he sum summarized both the costly sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and the challenging call to every one of his followers. And I want to use that passage tonight as kind of a springboard for where we're going to go. And so I invite you to take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter and chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 21 down through verse 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He who, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight thanking you for the opportunity to be able to sit under the teaching of your word. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. We know that he is in this place, and we know that he will teach us truths that will point us to Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that each one of us would have our hearts open and attentive to what your Spirit has to say to us tonight. Father, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that, Father, I would say only those things that you would have me to say, and, Father, that we would see Jesus tonight, for it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. When Peter used the Greek word, which is translated example in that passage, he was using an illustration from his childhood. 
The word literally means right under. This word was utilized by the ancient Greeks to describe the practice of teaching children how to write. And so at that time, children learned the skill of writing by literally tracing over written letters. Now, I remember seeing uh, that example done in our house many times as my wife taught our children how to write, and she would write real lightly, and then they would trace over that, and that is the word that Peter uses here, for example. And so Peter moves from the idea of a child learning to write to a Christian planting his feet in the footsteps of Jesus. And so in this, this context, the footprints or the footsteps of Jesus are ones of suffering. However, the illustration is applicable in, in a much broader way for us today. So just as a young child follows the shapes of letters of his teacher and therefore learns how to write, even so Christians pattern his life after the life of the master and thus learns how to live the way the master would have us to live. And so a, a Christian is one who follows in the footsteps of Jesus. <clears throat> the Greek word follow means to take the same road as someone else. So a Christian is one who does just that. He follows the footsteps of Jesus down the same road of life. Now, Charles M. Shelton wrote a book many years ago that I'm sure many of you are familiar with that has become really a classic. And the book tells the story of how a pastor and his congregation committed themselves to following in the footsteps of Jesus. And so in every situation of life, they would ask themselves the question, what would Jesus do? in that particular situation that they found themselves on a daily basis. And then these devoted people would seek to do what they felt that Jesus would do in that situation. And so they followed in the footsteps of Jesus and they found themselves becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And of course the book was appropriately entitled In His Steps. So how can we follow in his steps? How can we follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Tonight we are going to reflect on, on some characteristics of our Lord's life and his ministry, and we can learn how we can follow his example. And so what are the ways in which we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Well, number one, we need to follow in the footsteps of his priority of his priority. You see, God was first in the life of Jesus. The concerns of serving God took priority over everything else that was going on in life during the time of the ministry of Jesus. This was most evident when, as a 12-year-old boy, he responded to the reprimanding remarks of his parents by saying in Luke chapter 2 and verse 49, how is it that ye sought me? Wits ye not that I must be about my father's business? We can also look at how Jesus handled the situation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus had been witnessing to this desperate and needy woman, and she responded by leaving her water pots and going into town and calling others to come see a man. 
And when the disciples returned from town with food, they offered it to Jesus. And Jesus said to them in John 4, 34, he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus spoke very, very personally about his motivation and his aims in life when he declared in John chapter 8 and verse 29, I do always those things that please him. And so this was his philosophy of life. Everything that he did was to glorify the Father and to please the Father and, and to, to do what the Father would want him to do. He did not seek to please others, but rather to please God. In his book, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, in her book about Dwight Eisenhower, Mammy Eisenhower wrote some of the reasons why General Dwight D. Eisenhower was such a great leader. He was able to inspire others to serve and to sacrifice because, she said, of his deep love and loyalty to his country. And Mrs. Eisenhower said, I, I learned early in our marriage married life about his single-minded devotion to America. At their, at their first home, a small apartment near, near Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, young Eisenhower kept his gear packed at all times. He was ready to go anywhere when called upon to do so. And after they had been married only a month or so, Ike was uh, given a new assignment that would take him away from home. And he came in and he announced to his wife that he must leave and go away for a while. And she said to him, she said, Ike, you are not going to leave me this soon after our wedding day, are you? And Ike put his arm around his young bride and he said, Mammy, there is one thing that you must understand. My country comes first and, and always will and you come second. How would you like that, ladies, uh, within the first month of your marriage? And so Mammy Eisenhower was shocked, and she, she was a 19-year-old bride who had been married only one month, and now she had just heard the sobering words, you come second. Jesus demands a God-first loyalty from his followers. And he gave us the example of his own life by which we can pattern our life after. Do you remember the, the strong words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And those, those are hard words. And that word hate is a very strong word. But it, it, it really means to love less. It, it does not mean to despise. It does not mean to reject, as some might assume when you read that word hate because of the ideas that we have about hatred. The word means that the claims of Christ are to be above and before any other claims on our lives. And so our, our relationship with Jesus Christ must be first and foremost. We are to give him the supreme loyalty of our lives. And yes, so often we struggle in that area, don't we? We struggle because maybe it isn't even other people that are first, but sometimes we put ourselves first. 
and our desires and the things that we want to do and the things that we like, and we forget that Christ must have that first place in our life. We need to follow in the footsteps of his prayerfulness. Prayer was absolutely central in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. If you examine the Gospels, you will discover that at least 15 recorded occasions on which Jesus prayed. His example as a person of prayer stands as, as irrefutable and undeniable proof that prayer is vitally important in the life of a Christian. Eric Lydale was a, uh, a hero of the 1924 Olympic Games. He understood the value of prayer. You probably remember him as, as the subject of the Academy Award-winning movie, Chariots of Fire, and that great, that great song, you know, and what makes all of us want to run in slow motion, you know. When you get my age, everything you do is in slow motion. You understand that, right? And, and you'll get there sooner or later, Pastor. But uh, we just move in slow motion. And, and so we, we, we know him from that. You may also know him as the athlete who, who would not run on Sunday. He took a bold and courageous stand. And of course, some thought that, that he was just being a little bit too eccentric. But there is much more to the story of Eric Little than what has, has been featured in the movie. Because you see, later he became a missionary to North China. And while Eric Little was faithfully proclaiming the gospel, he was arrested by the communists and he was thrown into prison. Then he was placed with other missionaries who had been apprehended during that time. And with sheer amazement, these fellow missionaries watched him during the terrible times of imprisonment. They watched Eric rise up early in the morning before everyone else would get up. And he would get down on his knees and he would begin to pray. And he organized a prayer service. And, and Eric prayed with his fellow prisoners. He was constantly communing with God. What made Eric Little play so much important on this issue of prayer? What, why did he do that? Well, as a young man, Eric studied the Gospels and especially the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he read that Jesus prayed before his baptism. He also read about how Jesus prayed after his baptism and just before the dreaded temptation experience. Eric was impressed with the fact that Jesus spent all night praying before he chose his disciples. And he also read with intense, with intense entrance the, the scenes in the New Testament where Jesus rose up early in the morning and he went out in the mountainside and he would pray and he would get alone with God. He pictured in his mind how Jesus would be, be alone with God, uh, crying out to God in those early mornings. And then the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus agonized in prayer to the point that he, he sweat great drops of blood and, and that touched Eric's life. He was captivated by the fact that Jesus prayed even while dying on the cross. In studying the prayer life of Jesus, Eric Little committed his life to following in the footsteps of Jesus' prayerfulness. We are not prepared, I believe, to preach or to teach or to lead or even to face the demands of our work schedule until we have followed in the footsteps of his prayerfulness. 
Because if we try to do anything, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's ministry or whether we try to separate it as, as our job or our family or what, whatever it is that we do, we cannot do it in our own strength. And that's what we are doing when we, when we forget to pray. And so a person might as well forget about following Christ and, and turn in his discipleship badge unless he or she is willing to pay the price of the disciplined prayer life. We must follow in the footsteps of prayerfulness. But then number three, we need to follow in the footsteps of his people-centeredness. People were important in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Theologians describe Jesus as a man for others. He was people-oriented. William Booth, when William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was well up into his 90s and, and in failing health, he missed his first Salvation Army convention, which was to be held in London. Booth had always been present at all of the previous conventions so that he could inspire and encourage the other workers. Well, as the delegates convened, William Booth sent a message to be read at the beginning of the convention's proceedings, and the, the message was very brief. In fact, it was just one word. He said, dear disciples, and then came the one-word message, others, signed William Booth, others. William Booth had made others the thrust of his ministry as he reached out to the down and out. Booth followed the pattern of Jesus in emphasizing others, and now he was challenging his co-workers to do the same thing. Booth characterized his life best when he wrote in the King of England's autograph album. He said, some men's ambition is art, some men's ambition is fame, some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the soul of men. Is that our ambition in life? Are we following in Jesus' footsteps in the area of being others, other uh, uh, sensitive and other centered in the, in, in, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we find that little children will become important to us. In the New Testament world, they were considered to be insignificant. Uh, they, they were put aside and they focused more on the adults. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful in our own Christian churches, they become, they become insignificant. The attitude of the disciples in Mark chapter 10 and verse 13 expressed this view. When the mothers began bringing their children to Jesus, they, they desiring to have him touch them, the disciples intervened, and they tried to prevent that from happening. And the disciples didn't think that Jesus had time for such insignificant people like these little children who were coming. But Jesus proved them wrong when he declared in Mark 10, 14, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus cared about little children. Jesus not only loved little children, but he loved big sinners as well. One of the criticisms most often levied at Jesus by the religious leaders of his day was this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that word receives is the word welcome. Jesus welcomes sinners because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He loved tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. He loved prostitutes like Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well. You see, Jesus, Jesus was a person who loved people. And the most amazing fact about God's love in Christ is that he not only loves the smallest child and the biggest sinners, but he also loves his worst enemies. Do we love our enemies? Do we love those people who, who give us a hard time? Jesus sought constantly to break through the rigid hard-heartedness of the religious leaders, but they would not listen to him. While, Hitler, while in Hitler's prison, Martin Niemöller wrote this. He said, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his enemies. He's not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his enemies. You see, Jesus proved to be the God of love, and that love extended to those who opposed him and to those who hated him most. Are people important to us? Do we care that literally millions of people in, a, in our own state, in our own country, in the entire world are lost and without Jesus and will spend eternity in hell? We need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be people-centered. We need to follow in, in his example by reaching out again and again and again to draw all ages and all classes of people and all races of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, we need to follow in the footsteps of his purity. Look, at, look with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 7, a very familiar verse. It says, the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ there. And light, among other things, is a symbol of purity. So when we read in the Gospels the stories of Jesus, we see a person of purity. During his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ was pure in his mind. He was pure in his speech. He was pure in his action. He is a perfect example of purity. In a day when the media is having a field day with the negative coverage of religious people, we must commit ourselves to following in the footsteps of Jesus' Jesus's purity. It's important that we do that because we see one religious leader after another failing and falling into impurity. We must be people of purity. We cannot afford anything less. Number five, we need to follow in the footsteps of his perseverance. Look with me to, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your mind. The writer of Hebrews here understood very well the perseverance 
or the endurance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Jesus is described as the one who endured the cross. In the, in the very next verse, the writer further depicts Jesus as one who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Jesus endured to the very end. He, and he challenges us to do the same thing. And so in this, in this same passage in, in, in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, the Christian life here is betrayed as a race, a race that must be run, a race that must be endured. Jesus, our Lord, has pioneered a path before us and is waiting at the finish line for every one of us. Every Christian must look to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith looked to Jesus at the finish line of the race and run the race with perseverance, not giving up, not saying, I can't do it. It's too hard, but that we persevere. Some years ago, there was a state high school track meet where a promising young athlete was featured to win the one-mile race. Everyone knew that he was going to win, and, and the anticipation was centered mainly on whether or not his, uh, outsta this outstanding young athlete would run the race in record time. Now, one small high school had entered run runners in every race for the very first time. However, this small school had a misfortune of having their best runner become ill, and therefore he could not enter into the race. Standing by his commitment to enter someone in every race at that track meet, the coach turned to an underclassman who was without a doubt his worst runner. And he said to him, he said, son, I don't expect you to win. I do expect you to finish. And so at the starting line, all eyes were, of course, on the promising runner for he was sure to come in first. And as expected, that's exactly what he did. And the young underclassmen came in a distant last place. In fact, they had to delay the start of the next event because it took him so long to get across the finish line. And when he finally came across the finish line, the young fellow fell like a tree to the pavement. His face was bloodied and, 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 and scratched up from hitting the pavement. And the judge ran over to see if he was all right. And as the judge turned the boy over, he could see that the little fellow had almost fainted there. He said, why, why didn't you drop out when you saw that you were going to lose? And gasping for air, the young runner said, our best runner was sick and the coach told me to run in his place. Now, I know that, but why didn't you just quit? The, the judge asked again. And the boy looked up at him and he said, Coach didn't tell me to quit. He told me to finish. And that's what I did. Jesus told us to finish. Jesus wants us to go to the finish line. He doesn't want us to be, be a quitter like, like Demas, but like a finisher like the Apostle Paul who declared, I have finished my course. Some of you may be feeling like quitting about now. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're downtrodden. Maybe you're going through some very dark days in your life, and you feel like you can't take another step, that you can't go on. The greatest blessing is always around the next corner. We've got to keep on going.
take heart, Jesus is at the finish line and he's waiting for you to come across that finish line. And so we follow in his footsteps of perseverance. And then we need to follow in the footsteps of his proclamation. In, in, in Luke chapter 4, if you turn there with me, Luke chapter 4, and we find in verses 18 and 19 a passage that, that that pastor had been preaching on here a while back. In verses 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke saw Jesus fulfill the words of Isaiah chapter 61. These two verses give us some, some insight about the, 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 the proclamation ministry of Jesus. First, Jesus presented the good news of, of consolation. He came to heal the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted people are in every city and in every county and every state. Every one of us come across brokenhearted people every week of our lives. And oftentimes we are so wrapped up in our own situations that we don't see the brokenhearted. They are in every pew of every church as Jesus preached good news of consolation to the people the first century. We must do the same thing today. We need to share with people the love of Jesus. Second, Jesus present, presented the good news of, of uh, emancipation. He came to preach deliverance to the captive. John 8, 34 reminds us that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. We, 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 are, we are sinners. We were born sinners. But when we commit sin, we, we, we show that we are still a slave to sin in our life. So people who live under the bondage of sin need to hear the good news of emancipation. We don't need to live under the bondage of sin anymore. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Third, Jesus presented the good news of, of um, illumination. He came to give sight to the blind. Spiritual blindness is even worse than physical blindness. Re Jesus restored the sight of many people who were physically blind, but he came primarily to give sight to those who were spiritually blind. Fourth, Jesus presented the good news of liberation. He came to set at liberty them that are bruised. And the bruised people are those who are downtrodden. Oppression is, is much, much deeper than slavery. It means that a person has been crushed. They have been defeated. They have been whipped down by life and all of the things that life throws at them. And Jesus came to give hope to those who were hopeless. And we need to do the same. And fifth, Jesus presented the good news of salvation. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus came to announce that the day of salvation has come. God's, God's provision of abundant life is right now. <clears throat> In his book, Life Rails, Scott Walker tells the story of an older friend James Pearson, who fought in World War II. And on one occasion, Pearson was a part of a reconnaissance team that was sent out to scout German troop positions. The patrol left very early that morning. And as they departed, 
the relative security of their own front lines, <clears throat> the patrol had to, come, to cross an, an American minefield. Well, the mines had been clearly marked for their safe passage, and therefore very, very cautiously, these men made their way across that field of explosives. On the other side of the field, they, they entered the woods and, and, and intensely approached the German position. They had not advanced very far when machine gun nests opened fire on them, pinning them to the ground. And for four hours, they lay unable to advance or even to retreat. As time marched by ever so slowly, the blue skies became slate gray and snow clouds began to form over them. By mid-afternoon, a, a virtual blizzard had descended on the land and visibility became very limited. And as the snow came down heavier and heavier, the, the platoon leader decided they had to risk a retreat under the cover of the storm. By a saving act of nature, they, they were able to, to uh, furtively slip away from the, from the deadly German crossfire and return to the American line. However, when they reached the edge of the woods and they looked out across the pasture land that was containing the minefield, a new and, and especially dangerous problem confronted them. The deep snow had completely covered the markings that indicated where the mines had been planted. And as the sky grew darker, a decision had to be made. And so the platoon leader sensed that, that a German offensive was imminent if his patrol waited until the next day to cross the minefield. They could easily be wiped out by the, the German advance at dawn. And although it was very risky, they, they really had only one option, and they, they had to take their chances. They had to cross the minefield before darkness totally enveloped them. And so the lieutenant called the men together, and he informed them that he was going to lead them single file across the meadows. He sternly ordered them that they were to walk 30 yards behind each other and most importantly, they had to place their boots exactly in the same imprint that was left by his boot. In this way, if a mine exploded, only he would detonate it and he alone would be killed. Slowly, the reconnaissance team advanced across the meadows. Only one step, uh, only one set of boot prints was, was left across the entire platoon. Miraculously, they all made it to the safety of the American lines. The next day, as the men awoke, they found that their boot prints could still be seen in the snow. And several hours later, as the engineers again marked the mines, they discovered that the entire platoon had nearly stepped over a mine, miraculously avoiding detonating it and killing them all. They had followed in the leader's footsteps, and they had reached home safely. Sometimes serving God is like walking through a minefield, isn't it? But take heart, his footprints are before us. He challenges us to follow in his footsteps of his priority 
of his prayerfulness, of his people-centeredness, of his purity, of his perseverance, and of his proclamation. And if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we will arrive home safely. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.